Welcome to another episode of the Disability History Association podcast. My name is Caroline Liefers, and it's my pleasure today to be talking to Dr. Mike Davis. Mike is an assistant professor of history at Hampton University in Virginia, and he's currently working on his first book, A Religious Biography of the Wright Brothers. Mike, I know you're working on actually a few different projects, but I wanted to start with the Wright Brothers. What got you interested in this history? Well, that came from a few directions. My dissertation was about the history of American anti-Masonry. And Orville and Wilbur's father, uh, Bishop Milton Wright, is uh, probably the most famous post-Civil War anti-Mason. Uh, a teenage Wilbur was actually Milton's right-hand man during this period, before he lost interest in becoming a minister and became a printer and a mechanic instead. So I was familiar with the Wright family and religion, and about a year ago, I read a blog post by uh, Chris Garretts at uh, the Pietist Schoolman talking about the spiritual life of the Wrights, and I decided there was a potential book there. It's really neat. For people who don't know, uh, what is anti-Masonry? Well, anti-Masonry was the, in an American context, it's the American Protestant opposition to Freemasonry and the various Masonic organizations, seeing them as being anti-Christian and elitist. Um, it has a particular relevance in um, the United States because there's a strong connection between anti-Masonry and the abolitionist movement. Anti-Masonry is basically the gateway drug that gets these Northern evangelicals like Wright politicized, and then it'll get them involved in abolitionism and other political causes. So it's, in some ways it's kind of seen as well, you know, it's those Southern planters getting together in their lodges and scheming against us, the Northern Christians. And, uh, there's an attempt to revive anti-Masonry after the Civil War by abolitionists who want to keep reforming American society. It's a, it's a bust. It, it does not work. But Milton Wright is probably the most famous of the evangelicals involved in that, largely because of his sons. That's really interesting. So... After setting that up and giving us that background, what is your book arguing about the Wright brothers and their religious life? Well, I argue that the Wrights really should be understood as a product of 19th century Midwestern Protestantism. Um, in particular, the clash between that movement and so-called scientific rationalism. Their father is a leading Protestant in post-bellum Indiana, He's the man behind today's Church of United Brethren in Christ. Both the Wrights grow up in a pious household. Wilbur considers becoming a minister like his father. They ultimately kind of veer away from, you know, quote, traditional Christianity after reading the works of Robert Ingersoll when they're teenagers. Ingersoll is probably the most famous free thinker of the late 19th century. Um, but they stay, what to use the modern term, they stay culturally Christian all their lives. They don't drink, they don't smoke, they don't work on Sundays. 
Uh, they're considered, quote, good Christian gentlemen, even by people who know they don't attend church. Uh, there's a great bit in um, one of Orville's letters to their father, Milton, when Wilbur and Orville, when Wilbur and Orville are visiting Paris after Kitty Hawk, and Orville writes to their father, reassuring him that, by the way, we haven't started drinking wine here, but we're still behaving ourselves. Now, this is when they're both men in their early 40s. And uh, so it's, it's, their, their family correspondence is a real, really interesting to read. And I guess if I would sum it up, I'd say the story of the rites and religion is maybe a story of being culturally religious or spiritual but not religious, which is a pretty familiar story to those of us who live in the 21st century. Hmm. So by this point, listeners of the Disability History Association podcast might be wondering, well, where's the connection with disability? So I want to lead us into that. I understand that um, some people, and you know, most recently perhaps the novelist Tara Staley, and I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, have tried to make the case that Orville, or perhaps both Orville and Wilbur, were on the autism spectrum. Do you think this is the case? How do you read this? I'll say first that uh, Staley's book is very interesting. I'm actually doing a uh, romance novel challenge for the website Nursing Cleo, where historians read a historical romance about their period and write about it. So that's actually one project I'm working on. Um, as far as diagnosing the rights, it's hard to say. To me, uh, it's a bit like identifying someone as LGBT in retrospect. Uh, it's tough because in some ways, these are both lasting scientific categories and they're also contemporary social categories. And it's hard to fit people from the past into that. I do agree there is some strong evidence that the rights and particularly Orville may have been uh, neuroatypical. Um, Orville is deeply, almost profoundly introverted through his whole life. There's a great quote I found from a 1931 New Yorker article about Orville. It goes like this, that the first man ever to fly an airplane is a gray man now, dressed in gray clothes. Not only have his hair and his mustache taken on this tone, but his curiously flat face too. 30 years of hating publicity and its works, 30 years of dodging cameras and interviews have given him what he has obviously wished for most, protective coloration, which will enable him to fade out of public view against a neutral background. It's just so evocative. And there's other stuff too, like uh, in 1926, Orville's sister, Catherine, who had basically been his secretary slash social manager, she leaves the family home to get married. Orville is completely infuriated. He calls her a traitor to the family. He won't speak to her again until she's on her deathbed, much to the alarm of the other surviving rights, Wilbur having died about uh, a decade earlier. So it's clear there is something different about Orville. It's hard to say exactly what that was. Wilbur is better at socializing than Orville is, 
but even he'll write about how he he feels that he has a hard time relating to other people that he is much more critical of other people than than they are uh, and if you look at some of wilbur's correspondence he is fairly critical there's a great bit where he um, when he's in paris he goes to visit the notre dame and he writes back to his sister and he says you know it's actually much smaller and much dirtier than they make it sound in all the books. He's very critical of this cathedral. I actually wind up arguing that if there was something kind of you know, distinct about the rights in this way, that it may have saved their lives, that the rights desire for control and order in the world is probably one reason why they both survived all their flights, unlike many of their more kind of careless successors. Both Wilbur and Orville, Wilbur in particular, are very insistent that they will be the ones who build all the machines, that they will not tolerate mistakes made by other people. And it sounds like it made them difficult to work with sometimes, but it kept them alive. Was it their personality traits that got them into aviation and allowed them to make these sorts of developments in the first place? Well, the path there is kind of interesting. Uh, they start out running a print shop in Dayton. Uh, you know, neither of them go to college. Uh, they both kind of go to the local high school and finish their education there. Uh, they started running a print shop. It's the 1890s. It's the height of the bicycle craze. They're kind of, you know, to use a, a, maybe a modern term, I almost picture them as being the equivalent of, you know, I don't know, modern, modern tech bros or maybe modern hipsters. You know, they see this rising industry uh, called um, the bicycle, this new tech hobby. They get on, in on that. They build a bicycle shop. Uh, they don't like cars. Uh, Wilbur will see an early automobile and say, okay, this is not going to work. This is, a, this is a, a failed idea. But from an early age, uh, well, once they become mechanics, Wilbur starts reading about this kind of growing aviation craze. Uh, he, he talks about it in almost religious terms, Wilbur does, of having heard the gospel of aviation and becoming a missionary of it and converting uh, Orville. And they kind of jump on this new thing. And it's, it's a very kind of American story because if you look at their contemporaries, the other people involved in the, the race to be the first to fly, Almost everyone else has um, corporate financial backing or they come from money themselves. Uh, and the rights are just these two guys who never went to college, who run a bike shop in the Midwest. And they, they get there before all the suits because they're willing to put in the work and put in the, in the effort for it. Although I, it's funny, I call them suits I say their opponents wear suits, but if you look at Wilbur and Orville, even when they're down in the remote part of the Outer Banks, which is even more remote than it is today, um, they're going out, they're wearing their, their stiff collars and their Victorian kind of middle-class gentlemen's outfits. You know, they are 
know, good upper middle class uh, Midwesterners, even when they're you know, working on machines around all these country folk uh, in North Carolina. To go back to this issue of Orville or Orville and Wilbur being on the autism spectrum or neurodiverse or neuroatypical, do you think that there are positives and or negatives to this kind of retrospective diagnosis or identification that some people are doing? Absolutely. Well, I mean, I recognize uh, disability representation is very important. Neuroatypical people deserve to be able to look at the pages of history and see themselves reflected there just as much as everyone else outside the, quote, mainstream does. I do worry a bit about assigning labels to past figures when they themselves would not have used that label. I always feel a little weird about that. And, and honestly, as someone who doesn't have any formal training in that kind of diagnosis, I'm reluctant to do it. So I'm comfortable saying there's some, some interesting evidence about the rights being neuroatypical. I won't contradict someone who would say, well, maybe Orville was on the spectrum. I'm not comfortable saying it myself, though. It mm -hmm. is not, not, not my wheelhouse. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Is it the Wright brothers that got you interested in disability history in the first place, or was that through some other route? Well, I'd say the thing that got me the most interested in uh, disability history as a field uh, was picking up uh, Kim Nielsen's uh, Disability History of the United States. Um, I'm sure your listeners are familiar with that. Uh, I'll just say I found it very fascinating, a great text to use in class. Uh, it got me looking for other people engaged with disability history, which led me to you fine folks at the association. <laughs> well, thank you very much. And I agree, Kim Nielsen's book is really wonderful, particularly for teaching. Let's pivot to your new project, which is a biography of Edgar Casey. Can you start by just explaining to me and everybody out there, who is Edgar Casey? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll say first that uh, uh, si since we last talked, I have had the joy of signing an advanced contract on that biography of Casey, so I'm feeling very, uh, very excited about that. But to, to kind of pivot back to your question, the question of who Edgar Casey is really is the big question. If you look at the popular memory, Edgar Casey is either an enlightened sage and prophet whose teaching is about past lives, holistic medicine, and the hidden history of the world can still inspire us today, or he's a huckster and a con man whose pseudo-scientific legacy still haunts us today. Uh, I personally look at Casey as a, a bit of a different way. He's really a bridge between the mysticism of the 19th century and the new age movement of the 20th century. He's a product of the new south who is primarily remembered by people outside the south. He's a self-described clodhopper from rural Kentucky whose uh, works are still being read and discussed globally long after his death. Uh, he's an interesting guy. Oh my goodness. Okay, you've given us a lot to unpack there. So let's start with just basic factual information. Where and when did Casey live? And what did he do that made him so famous? Uh, Christian County is out in western Kentucky. It's near Paducah as the closest city of any size. And you know, I, I love Paducah, but it's, it's not a very big size. Uh, but 
he grows up at a time when I kind of say almost a, a small scale apocalypse. The tobacco market in Christian County and everywhere is collapsing. Farm economies are dropping. People like his father loses all of the land he owns and becomes a tenant farmer, then moves into the county seat of Hopkinsville to try and find work. Um, Edgar, before we even get into the mystic side of things, you know, he, he grows up as somebody who wants an education, wants to learn more about the world, but he's denied this because of his family's poverty. He winds up working in the town bookstore in Hopkinsville, Kentucky, where he is selling books to all the college students in Hopkinsville, but he personally can't afford to go there. Uh, he moves around for a while. He lives in Bowling Green for a few years where he actually is the subject of a church trial for fortune telling while he's also teaching Sunday school. Uh, he goes to live in Selma, Alabama, right around the time the bull weevil epidemic is hitting there. So it's another kind of apocalypse he's living through. Um, then in the 20s, uh, by this point, he's become known as a mystic. He gets a job to essentially be have this wealthy client named Arthur Lammers in Dayton, Ohio. He packs up his family, moves to Dayton. Lammers' business almost immediately fails. Um, by this point, Casey has enough kind of followers slash financial supporters that he's able to move out to Virginia Beach in 1925, which is what puts him in my neck of the woods. And there he kind of keeps working and builds up this association around him uh, and uh, dies in 1945. The household name actually until, well, posthumously, until the 50s and 60s when the New Age movement hits and you get this movement of people really nationally interested in hearing about past lives and reincarnation and hidden wisdom and that kind of thing. So this is really, really fascinating. And I want to pick up on what you've pointed out about Edgar Cayce being a mystic. So people apparently thought that there was a link between traumatic brain injury in his childhood and his subsequent powers. Is, is that correct? Yes, that's uh, one of the noteworthy things about, about Casey. Uh, it's clear from his various biographies, uh, most of which are from his own accounts, that he suffered multiple childhood and head injuries, some of them severe. And it's about that time he starts having uh, what he interprets as spiritual experiences. He starts seeing the little people being visited by bright lights, hearing voices, etc. Um, some of the more materialistic of his believers will assert that it must have been the head injuries that unlocked his, his visionary powers, pointing to uh, other 20th century psychics like Peter Herkos, who had uh, similar experiences. Uh, I've actually read some anti-New Age writers who are equally materialistic, but almost from an opposite direction, saying that, well, it must have been when the young Casey had the head injuries that the demons came in and possessed him and uh, started giving him these visions. 
I'm wondering what are some of the recommendations or advice or insights that Casey would be able to give to people that made him so popular? Well, well there's a lot to say there. Uh, Casey left behind almost 50,000 pages of writing, uh, you know, making him a more productive than a lot of more famous American spiritual leaders. Almost all of what he left behind are recommendations about individual people's health and spirituality. So with all that advice over more than 20 years of advice giving, he said a lot. Uh, in general, I think Casey should be understood as the father of holistic medicine, you know, the idea of treating the whole person for illnesses. Uh, he'd recommend things like uh, adopting a special alkaline diet, uh, using particular kinds of alternative medicine like sulfur treatments. He was skeptical of things like vaccinations. Um, you know, a physician today might be rather skeptical of what Casey said, but we can at least say he believed it. Uh, for example, his son Milton actually dies of an illness in infancy because the family uses his diagnoses rather than conventional medicine. Do you think about or analyze Casey's life in terms of disability history? Is this one of the lenses that you're using for your project? Well, both Casey's own um, arguable disabilities, as well as those of his patients, are in my mind. Uh, he does get a fair number of people coming to him looking for treatments for uh, you know, chronic disabilities. He works with people with paralysis quite a bit. Uh, for example, uh, while doing the work, I've rediscovered the writing of uh, a man named uh, Thomas Joseph Sugru. I have to stress, by the way, that this isn't the historian at NYU who has the same name. Uh, Sugru is Casey's first biographer. He's a partially paralyzed college friend of Edgar's son, Hugh, who becomes a world traveler, a journalist, a writer on Catholic issues. Uh, it's clear Sugru saw Casey's gifts as true, something that might eventually heal what he saw as his own disabilities, even if that never uh, actually happens. So I think there's a lot to say about Casey and uh, people with disabilities who did not find medical care in conventional medicine in the 20th century uh, looking for um, looking for what today we would call alternative medicine. Mm -hmm. uh, it's kind of hard to to do the history of alternative medicine in a lot of ways because you know your your impulse as a a twenty first century rationalist is to say oh well these people are being deluded by pseudoscience. But I think it's really important to, you know, take them seriously as people who uh, could not find help, could not find solutions in conventional society. And so they kind of exercised their agency. They exercised what power they had to find something meaning outside of the conventional. Hmm. That's really interesting. I'd, I'd love to follow up on that, if you don't mind. So, sure. I mean, many historians have pointed out that people with disabilities in this period were often subjected to the quite violent, curative 
focus of the medical model of disability, which is always okay. seeking to sort of fix their disabilities and in the face of, uh, in many ways, quite an intolerant society. So do you think that Casey and his holistic approach offered people something that was perhaps less violent or um, less focused on purely cure? I mean, can you just round this out a little bit for me? Because I think it's quite interesting. Oh, yes. I mean, Casey, a lot of what Casey does is arguing that for a rejection of uh, traditional medicine. Uh, so we'll do things like he'll prescribe particular diets to patients, uh, things like today would be called uh, you know, aromatherapy. Um, he's one of the early advocates uh, of, uh, you know, if you've ever been into kind of a new age store and seen uh, you know, crystals, uh, he's a big believer in you know, crystal power coming from Atlantis and that kind of thing. And you know, when you think about, you know, as you mentioned, the very harsh treatments that somebody with paralysis like Sugru would have faced from conventional medicine in the 30s and 40s. Oh, it's, it's no wonder that he found more meaning in this kind of spiritual slash uh, holistic stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, is it possible to generalize about how Casey was received by the public or by the media? I mean, was there skepticism? Was there popular interest in him? Uh, there's definitely some interest in him. Uh, a lot of the conventional kind of press coverage about him will be, oh, actually fairly akin to what I've seen about contemporary news coverage about psychics. That, oh, the, the here's the miracle man of Virginia Beach, and here's what he does. Uh, he doesn't attract a lot of followers in the way somebody like uh, Ellen G. White or Joseph Smith does. He's not interested in kind of building up a, a, a quote, church around him. But uh, he does, actually from a fairly early age, is subject to national attention. There is a New York Times story about him, actually from before the First World War, talking about this uh, man in at that point in Hopkinsville, Kentucky, and in Bowling Green, who can go into trances and make diagnoses of illnesses that um, can't otherwise be done. And again, you know, thinking about the context, you know, if you have a chronic uh, illness in you know, a Christian County, Kentucky, or in Bowling Green in 1910 or 1915, there is probably not a lot conventional medicine can do for you. So it's no wonder you're turning to somebody like Casey. Uh, it's interesting, too, when you look at a lot of the press coverage about Casey, especially when he's young, uh, like that New York Times article I mentioned. Mm -hmm. uh, he is described as being an illiterate boy from Kentucky. Uh, which is really fascinating because he's not illiterate. Uh, his, his writing is somewhat idio, idiosyncratic because he never finishes the eighth. He, he gets as far as the eighth grade and that's the end of his education. But he reads obsessively uh, the, both the King James Bible and other books he can get his hands on. 
the press, the press, and even people who know him are still calling him boy, even though he's in his early 30s and the father of a small child. Uh, a lot of that has to do with respectability. Uh, visions and prophecies weren't really socially acceptable for people of Casey's background and generation. There's a great quote from his autobiography where he remembers being told by a, a young woman he was courting that you know, she can't marry him because visions are something black people have, not you know, respectable white people who are trying to get into the middle classes. So Casey uh, is known to people in the mainstream in much the same way that we might know, uh, you know somebody like uh, a Dr. Oz or some other kind of alternative uh, medicine slash alternative spirituality person. Like I said, he doesn't really take off until the 50s and 60s because that's when you get this kind of broader, quote, mainstream movement that's uh, coming out of the new age and is more interested in Casey's kind of model of spirituality. That's really, really fascinating. I'm especially interested in what you're saying about Casey's visions, you know, his, his own neuroatypicalness as um, having valences of racial discrimination, class discrimination, oh, and yes. it really speaks to disabilities embeddedness in these larger social frameworks, right? Do you think that this kind of clairvoyance that Casey has should be considered part of disability history? I think so. Uh, as you can imagine, uh, it's, it's a, a fraught subject. Uh, it should be studied, but it's something that has to be handled delicately, uh, especially for talking about people whose uh, spiritual movements are still active. Uh, but I do think there's really room for a deeper investigation for disability historians to go back and look at someone like uh, what, you know, Mary Baker Eddy, who had chronic illnesses, or Ellen G. White, who uh, may have been epileptic, and Harriet Tubman, who, like Casey, had childhood head injuries and also slipped into trances where she experienced spiritual visions. It's a hard needle to thread because uh, you, it's very easy if you study these people through the lens of disability history uh, to, uh, I don't know, maybe be a little more materialistic than a historian of spirituality should be. That you know, if you simply medicalize matters and say, okay, these visions were happening because of this person's neuroatypicality, uh, it then comes the risk of, okay, are you devaluing the movement that they spawned? And I, I don't really have an answer to that one yet, but it's kind of an ethical problem I'm wrestling with in uh, working on Casey as a subject. Uh, there's certainly this overlap between disability history and the history of spirituality and spiritualism. Um, and perhaps it is the sort of social and cultural aspects of both that bring them together, right? Would you agree with that? 
I, yes, I think there's definitely room for that. Now, if you look at a lot of the histories of spirituality, uh, a lot of the agency that you see in it is people who otherwise don't have a voice in society. I mean, you know, quite famously, you've had people like uh, you know, Catherine Brickus uh, writing recently about how you know, the history of American religion is the history of American women and vice versa. And I think there's really grounds, uh, there's really room to talk about that in the context of disability history, that disabled people who might not otherwise have had a voice in society are able to get that voice by interpreting their experiences uh, through the lens of spirituality. Mm -hmm. At the risk of uh, over-medicalizing Casey, did he have any other quote-unquote sort of symptoms? Um, perhaps was he you know, trying to heal himself? Did he have um, other sort of psychological or cognitive things that he lived with, you know, that perhaps his spirituality and spiritualism helped him get through or resolve? Well, uh, the way Casey worked, his day-to-day -day kind of life as a, uh, a seer was he would get the questions from people interested in him and uh, he would lie down and go into a trance. And he would say things, his longtime secretary would record them, he would wake up and would sometimes claim to, uh, oh, I should say sometimes, would often say, oh, I have no idea what I said, uh, what's, what, what was the vision? Uh, it's hard to get a feel for uh, Casey, uh, because all of the biographies of Casey are, they're essentially hagiographies coming mm -hmm. out of the Association for Research and Enlightenment. Uh, you do often get people saying about Casey that, oh, he's really easy to exploit. We need to protect him from people who want to uh, you know, abuse, abuse his powers for financial gain. Um, but it, it's hard to know how much of that is you know, legitimately talking about somebody with uh, cognitive trouble and how much of that is, you know, it, it's not uncommon for you know, American uh, you know, spiritual leaders to present themselves as you know, just a good old boy from the back country. Mm. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so is Casey still popular today? You mentioned an institute that's publishing his biographies. Oh, yes. Uh, the Association for Research and Enlightenment down in Virginia Beach uh, is where his papers are. Uh, still has quite a few members. Uh, I have to recommend it, by the way. If any of your listeners are interested in any kind of esoteric topic from spirituality to UFOlogy to Atlantis, even the ARE has a huge esoteric library. It's been a real pleasure to visit there. Mm. Um, having said that, there are hundreds of books, many television programs inspired by Casey or directly taken from his writings, available either physically or on the internet. Um, in, in many ways, this is. The an age for someone like Casey. Uh, it's an age interested in 
alternative spirituality and alternative medicine. Um, if you go to the ARE these days, uh, what they really will focus on is the alternative medicine angle, uh, because that has a lot more resonance in our culture than, than maybe the Casey's stuff on Atlantis uh, did 50 years ago. But uh, it's continued. It's like a lot of 20th century American uh, kind of spiritual slash scientific movements that, you know, the challenge is always bringing in new people. But uh, it's continued. I mean, part of what got me interested in writing a Casey biography is here you have someone who has written more and published more and probably been the subject of a lot more attention than, again, an, an Ellen White or a Mary Baker Eddy, uh, but has just not had the kind of scholarly attention they did, I, which I think is because, because Casey winds up being remembered as a psychic. Uh, there's not really a lot of focused scholarly attention on the psychics as kind of the 20th and 21st century answer to the the seers and the prophets of uh, a previous generation. Hmm. I'm going to ask kind of a difficult question, but I hope you're game for it, which is okay. if you were, or if I were to use Casey in a disability history class that I was teaching, what are some of the lessons or insights that you think Casey helps give us into disability history as a field and the history of people with disabilities? Let's see. Well, I think if I was going to use Casey in a disability history class, I would probably uh, have students sit down and read some of his uh, recommendations that have, that have maybe not aged very well. And uh, we would take a little while to say, okay, gosh, why did anybody believe this 90 years ago? And then we would sit down and look at, okay, what medical treatments were available to you uh, 90 years ago? If mainstream medicine really is failing you, why are you turning to this? Uh, I think what I would really hope it would do is getting students to think uh, a little more seriously about uh, the connection between uh, you know, disability and spirituality and alternative medicine more generally. That, okay, we might understand these things as being uh, scientifically flawed, but we can still respect people saying, okay, I'm not getting anything that will help me from conventional sources, so I'm going to exercise my power and turn to the unconventional. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Oh, thank you. That's really interesting, and it's making me think I might actually use Casey in my own courses on the history of medicine and disabilities. Thank you so much, Mike. It was such a pleasure. I really appreciate it. Oh, it, it really was a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me on. Thanks to everyone out there for listening or reading the transcript. Please join us again next time. Bye-bye.